0: Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Bold Leaders in Learning. I'm Brandon Busteed, President of University Partners and Global Head of Learn Work Innovation at Kaplan. And I'm delighted to have uh, a great friend, Dr. Mona Morshid with me today, who is the CEO of Generation. I know some of you uh, who know about Generation and know about Mona because I got notes from you saying how excited you were to attend this LinkedIn live discussion with Mona. but Mona, I would love to start off with just a little bit about your background. You've had a long history at McKinsey. This was an initiative that led out of a lot of the work you were doing, thinking about the education to employment uh, universe out there. And uh, and so for folks who don't know you, tell us a little bit about you and your background, and then tell us what Generation is.
1: Great, thanks, Brandon. And thank you for the invitation to join you today. Very excited to do that. Um, so I've spent probably the last, um, 15 years working in education started with a focus on K-12 and then migrated to uh, the education to employment space, um, largely because what I was finding was that, uh, you know, just getting young people successful in school and graduated from secondary school was not good enough in terms of supporting them to enter into the employment space and, and be successful. Um, And so led quite a lot of research on education to employment across multiple countries, looked at over 150 youth employment programs um, across 25 countries. And the kernel of Generation um, and what it could be emerged from that work. Um, And so at Generation, which is a nonprofit, what we do is support learners who have faced multiple challenges in their lives. And we, and we train and place them into careers that would otherwise be beyond their reach. Um, and the goal very much is how do you do this over a span of weeks as opposed to months and years? Um, because for populations that have, have struggled on many different fronts, you know, time, is, time is of the essence. You have to be able to successfully get into a career as quickly as possible. Um, And so what that means is how do you support someone, um, for example, a woman with a primary school education in Kenya, how do you support her over the span of weeks to get into a sewing machine operator job? How do you support someone in Spain who has, who studied tourism and doesn't have a job? How do you get that person into a tech job? How do you support someone who is on the spectrum to get into a job that enables and takes advantage of all of the wonderful capabilities they have. Um, And so these are the types of things which we seek to do systematically. Um, Generation um, was launched in 2015, as you know, Brandon, um, and we're now live in 14 countries. Um, We've had about 38,000 learners um, across 26 professions. Um, We have an 86% job placement rate within three months Um, About 65% continue to be employed one year later, um, and they're earning three to four times an income. Um, And in this post-COVID world, we're dramatically thinking about how we both increase the scale and depth of our reach, as well as reach an even broader population of those that need support. So although we initially focused on a youth population, We have now created a program that we call Regeneration, which focuses on learners who are mid-career in, you know, let's say ages 30 to 55. um, And we support them to enter into careers that are quite different from where they were originally.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm eager to hear a little bit about the things you're learning between the the core generation programs and the new initiatives you've launched under Regeneration, but you know, before we kind of dive into some of that, and you know, I would love to hear your synopsis of some of the biggest takeaways or insights that you have learned as a result of this work. Uh, and then also, you know, the the massive challenges that you see, the biggest challenges to, uh, you know, barriers to this work. What what would be your high level summary on, on those two fronts?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, so here are, um, some of the learnings which we've had along the way and, and also weave into it the challenges. Um, so when we began Generation, um, it was very much with a view to so long as we can create return on investment for employers, by which I mean higher productivity and quality outcomes of our graduates relative to their non-generation job peers or a lower cost per hire relative to um, the non-generation equivalent or longer retention, that that in and of itself was sufficient to make the enterprise run, if you will. Um, And what we Mm -hmm. found is we have to deliver that. There's no question that we have to deliver that, but there are some pluses along the way. So in addition, in order to find employers that are ready to mobilize you know over a span of weeks versus over a span of months you know it's that they are ardently trying to fix this problem themselves of how do they find the skills they need for critical entry level roles and so like they are hunting actively for a solution by the time we come around Um, We found that it also, you know, that obviously different uh, employers have, can have different levels of affinity and commitment to what they want to serve in their community. Um, And so those that have tremendously high dedication to making a difference in their communities are faster to come to the table and so on. I think we've also found that mid sized companies, um, which are large enough to feel the pain of what happens when you don't get the skills you need, um, but often aren't large enough to mount systematic solutions that they are often the quickest to come to the table. We found that professions where there is higher degrees of scarcity, so for example, tech jobs, Um, It is, you know, we we call this our desperation index, if you will, you know, so just how hungry are you for a solution? They're faster to come to the table than those where, you know, it's an issue, but it's not a dramatic issue. It's not like a top two issue. Um, So those are some of the things we've learned on the side of employers. I think um, some of the other things we've learned along the way are the way that we measure workforce impact, you know, in many systems across the world, it's still very input oriented, right? You know, it's how many learners are trained. Um, how many learners graduate, right, as opposed to um, what we've developed for ourselves is um, we call some, we we have measures we call cost per employee day. So what is the, you know, it's a combination of the cost per student, the graduation rate, the employment rate, and the retention rate on the job over a certain time frame. So let's say over six months.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: So these types of measures, you know, if they were more systematically used. I mean, it could dramatically change the way we think about how our workforce systems function. Um, On the challenge front, you know, there it has the big question in the space is always, and it's been amplified by COVID, it's how can you mobilize enough jobs in order to make this work? Right. You know, so for our model, as you know very well, we mobilize jobs first before the boot camps begin. Um, And so that's always the rate limiting step. So can you mobilize enough and get sufficient um, commitment from employers at the start? Um, How do you also ensure that every classroom experience across generation is the same quality experience, right? You know, so we're now in 14 countries and we, you know, it's, so these are the types of things as we scale that we continue to grapple with.
0: Yeah, I think from the beginning, you know, one of the things that I've always been uh, most impressed about with Generation was the focus on the employer first, right, the job, the ultimate outcome, and then, you know, backing up from there in terms of how you can help people seeking jobs get there, right? So we've thought about education a lot of ways around get a degree, get a diploma, right? Even in, uh, you know, the United States where, you know, families and students are very well intentioned in their desire to go to college, a lot of them are heading off to college having had no work experience, no real idea what they want to do, they're making big investments in that college. And although a degree certainly improves the odds that you get a good job, a better job, a higher paying job, we know through a lot of data, there's a lot of students who don't end up graduating or who graduate and have subpar outcomes, because fundamentally, they haven't been aligned with the regional employer ecosystem, what are the fast growing in demand jobs. And so the way you've described it, right, the employer is really in many ways at the epicenter of this and you know to what degree do you do you see the insights that generation has learned being applicable to universities not just in the US but globally right like are there insights that you could take from that to say to universities hey you know here's what i do differently i mean one obvious point is you're not running degree programs you're running the shortest most intensive training possible to get the person from point a to point b in terms of that unemployed p- position to a job what would you say to uh, to higher education in terms of some of the lessons you've learned? What advice would you give to to higher ed institutions?
1: Yeah, um, great question. I think particularly in this COVID environment, it becomes all the more important um, as we have many more unemployed people who are trying to figure out how do I get back into the job market and how do I get into a different career than the one that I was in. Um, first and foremost, there is, very high demand from learners to be able to access programs that are you know in our case four to 12 weeks um but you know but it's you know it's it's weeks is the point it's not it's not even eight months it's weeks
0: (laughs) right yeah
1: such such that the outcome is employment, um, and certainly you see amongst um, some higher education institutions, you know whether it is, you know, adult, ed- you know, centers for adult education or continuing education or entirely new offerings. Um, but the, there is an undeniable demand from learners. It was pre-COVID, got accelerated by COVID, who are looking for these kinds of options because they simply cannot afford not just higher ed in terms of years of degree program, but they can't afford the time. They have families that they have to support. They need to get into stable jobs. Um, yep. And so how to do that in a way that ensures accountability to the employment. So this is not about how do we have, if, if, you know, as a higher education institution, it's not about how we have training programs. It's actually how we have employment programs of which a part of it is training. But, you know, I'll tell you, like with, with generation, the training is one out of seven steps that we do. And if we didn't do the other steps, we wouldn't get the employment outcome. And so if that is something where a higher education institution says, look, I want to have an employment program, there also has to be a recognition and it doesn't just stop with the training. You have to go out and secure the employment. You have to provide the supports once the person is on the job. It's a different enterprise, but it's a highly, highly demanded offering from people today across the world, because we have so many unemployed who are looking for a different path for their career.
0: Yeah. So the demand is there, right? It requires some pivots. It might require some different ways of thinking about yourself as an institution, right? So one of the things I've always said is if you're a college that thinks that the only thing you deliver is degrees, you're missing a huge opportunity, right? To think about all the different and highly valued non-degree based education that can be done. Um, And so, you know, you, you had mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, the support systems, you said training is just one of seven elements, right? And you don't need to run through all seven of them, but I know, you know, one of the big themes around that is, all the, all the you know, kind of nuts and bolts that help somebody from like, do they have transportation to get to the training program? I know you're doing everything online as, as most of the world has pivoted around COVID, but you know it was everything around you know, pieces like that to be thoughtful around the program support infrastructures that help an individual. I think universities are increasingly starting to realize that, but I think they still have a long way to go in thinking about how do they solve for what I think of as the non-academic needs of learners so that they can persist, so that it's possible to do it, whether it's time constraints or work constraints or whatever it is. So, you know, you might want to just expand a little bit. I mean, you know, isn't that a big part of how you're being successful?
1: Absolutely. Um, and 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 to be clear, I mean, we and, and we continue to try different things to increase the level of success. Right. But it's essentially um, when learners are having a challenging time, it is not it is often not because they're not absorbing the learning, but it's about the life around them. It's about, do they have stable housing? Are they able to feed their child? Are they able to get to their place of work? You know, it's, these things are, you know, it can be an Olympics (laughs) for some of our learners in terms of the adversity that they face and how, what they need to do to overcome it. And therefore the support that we have to provide to enable them to overcome it. And what we found is, you know, so long as the drive and the motivation is there on the part of our learners, we are able to find these solutions. But it, it's hard work. And I, I really want to emphasize it is hard work. And um, one of the things that, that we've recently done um, is now that we have, you know, over 7 million data points across our learners. Um, and, our, and, and our applicants, you know, spanning from, um, you know, for the moment they apply to the performance in the boot camp to the performance on the job, we can now do predictive analytics to help us to understand which of our learners might require more supports in this area or that area so that we can preempt it, you know, so that we don't, you know, hit a crash, but yeah. like we actually can see it before the crash happens such that we can provide the supports and increase the rate of success. Um, And often these are looking at, you know, it's not looking at your GPA that, that, that triggers this, (laughs) you know, it is often what's happening in terms of how you live. It's about your, the socioeconomic construct. And that's what we have to be able to support to, to ensure success for our populations.
0: Yeah. Speaking of learners, Barbara Thompson, who's with us live, asked a good question about how do you how do you identify and then select the learners that are are brought into these programs? I mean, you mentioned a couple tidbits, but but how are you guys? You know, how do you how do you find and recruit the students for this? What's the selection process? It'd be great to hear a little bit more.
1: Absolutely, um, many different ways is the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so we you know so there, there are probably a, a four main channels. You know, so the first is relationships with. Um, with nonprofits or other community-based organizations that are serving our target population, but perhaps on other areas of service. Um, the second is relationships with governments or government agencies. Um, you know, so for those, um, you know, so they 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 can share generation for those that have registered as unemployed in their particular country. Um, the third is through social media, um, and um, and enabling um, a broad swath of of our target population to get to know Generation. Um, you know, often. One cell phone is often the only stability that, that one has, um, and so being able to reach our learners through social media becomes increasingly important. Um, and then, lastly, and this is our most effective uh, way to get learners in—it's referrals from our graduates. Um, you know, so yep. <laughs> it's the friends and family of our graduates, um, and you know, there's, for example, in one of our um, in in our Kenya program, um, there's a certain community. Where we've now reached something like 8% of youth in that community. Um, and so, and it's because of this phenomena. Um, so, those are the four main ways, um, but we are always on the lookout to find other ways to be able to attract learners um, and so, so that they're aware of how we could potentially help. And then, once, once we bring them into the funnel, then um, in terms of how we select them for the program, um, the first is uh, around the, well, just call the basics, you know, so it's literacy numeracy levels match to the professions of need, you know, so whether it's sewing machine operator or IT help desk or nurse assistant, you know, it's a sliding scale of the literacy numeracy level required for that. And All for right. us, it's a, you know, are you, it, it's not, you're not ready, but it's, you're not ready yet if someone doesn't make it through there. Um, and then we can refer them as, as needed. Um, the second is whether they have the what I'll just call the intrinsics, of just natural intrinsics of like, if if you want to go into healthcare, do you have empathy? Which is um, an important part of service in healthcare. Um, And then lastly, what we call fire in the belly, which is just how hungry are you for a change in your life and for the future of your family? Um, And we have multiple ways to test for these things, Um, but that's what we look for. And honestly, so long as you have the fire in the belly, it doesn't matter if you have a secondary school degree or a university degree. You will power through and we will be able to support you to power through. And that for us is really important.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, as you're as you're talking about those facets, you know, I'm thinking about the, you know, the the supply, what what a lot of people would call the supply demand side of this equation, right? Like there's a lot of work being put into understanding the jobs that are growing in a region, right? And so you can get all kinds of data on. You know how many jobs there's going to be in you know mm-hmm. projected in cloud computing in Memphis or whatever city or demographic you're looking at but the other side of it is demand right like if you know if you go out and were to were to evaluate how many people in Memphis if I use this as an example are actually interested in or have any idea what a job in cloud computing is that's the other side of the equation that we've done I think collectively we've done much less work trying to solve for you guys are kind of seen on both ends because you're starting with the employer right that has the high demand job. But then, you know, you ultimately have to find people that, you know, understand what this career track might be, get excited enough about it where they have the fire in the belly to say, yeah, I want to go after that. And it brings me to this question of the differences and what you're seeing between the, um, the younger students who have been part of the initial generation programs versus the older adults who are coming through the regeneration programs. Like, I mean, what are, are there differences there that uh, have been really significant in terms of how you know, you either have to find them from a motivational perspective? I, and I, I think about it through the lens of one little story that I'm familiar with. It was a documentary that was done on uh, manufacturing workers in a particular plant. And most of the workers interviewed were over the age of 50. And somebody who, the person who was interviewing them was saying, well, you know, they, they just lost their job and they said, well, what do you think you're going to do instead? You know, do you think you'll go back and go to college and get retrained or whatever, get another job? And a lot of them just said, no, I think I'll just quit looking because I, I don't see myself doing anything else. So that, like that, that, that story is always stuck in my head of like, are there people who just throw in the towel, right? Or get close to throwing in the towel because they just can't envision making a big career switch, you know, later in their career. So anyway, I'm curious if you're seeing any of that play out.
1: Yeah, so, um, so for regeneration, um, and just to just briefly describe what that is. Um, so these are learners who are ages 30 to 55 on average. Um, they have either lost their jobs and are looking to get into a new job and typically into a new career, um, you know, or it is uh, caregivers who have been on a hiatus from the job market and because of financial reasons are looking to come back in. Um, and it can also be those that are in a job today, but they feel it's unstable or it's part-time hours and they're looking to upskill so that they can get into a more stable career. So that's, those are our you know, broad regeneration profiles, if you will. Um, and so we've been working with about 400 learners of these profiles um, across four countries last year. Um, in both healthcare jobs and in tech jobs. And here's what we see. Um, so first, um, we have classes where we mix our regeneration and generation learners in the same classroom. They go through the exact same program. I am happy yeah. to say, and this is like one of the things that was most important to us. They learn at the same pace, level of mastery as the generation learners. and. I really wanna pause on that because I think there is often a bias that says that those who are mid-career don't have the same learning aptitude as their younger counterparts, and that is false. Um, and right. so that's, that's the first part um, in terms of the learning. And by, And one of the great benefits that we see of actually having generation and regeneration in the same classroom is that for our regeneration learners, their manager may very well be younger than they are. Um, And how do you deal with that? And for our generation learners, our regeneration uh, learners can often provide greater guidance around judgment and how do you calibrate this, you know? And so it's been a real blessing, actually, to have both of them in the same classroom. And it's been to the benefit of each of them.
0: Um, yeah, no, it's really interesting that you're that you're blending them and uh and it's you know to your point, really uh, I think an important thing for all of us to kind of wrestle with. You're right, there's the preconceived notion that, you know, the older adult worker maybe not uh as primed to learn or as eager to learn or or you know, they just are rusty, whatever that right might mean. But uh really interesting to see that uh that you haven't seen that at all.
1: Um, and then we also, then when it comes to employment, I mean, here we do see a difference, right? You know, so typically our generation learners are are achieving, you know, 80% plus, 86% plus employment rates. Um, for our regeneration learners, um, on average, it is 50 to 60%. And so then you ask why, right? Um, and so part of it is employer bias um, towards a younger profile, part of it is about, just I'll, I'll say it's um, learner expectation of just what does it mean to start over in a new job? And also um, it is often just, you know, how can we support them to be able to brave entering into a new environment in a very different field than the one that they are used to? Um, so this is, the, this is a really important area of learning for us. Um, so our more recent cohorts have been able to achieve employment rates of, you know, 75% plus, And so for for regeneration, so we're, we're getting we're getting traction on it. But this is an area that we really want to invest in deeply, because we believe it's possible to have the same level of outcomes for both.
0: Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And I know you, you mentioned this uh, very briefly early earlier, but uh, it also sounds like you've launched some new programs that are working very specifically with autistic learners, um, tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, that uh, obviously must have required a different way that you were kind of approaching the training, or maybe the identification of the learners. But uh, what are what are you kind of discovering through those programs?
1: Yeah. So um, we are we've piloted this in Hong Kong, um, and so we've worked closely um, with a set of educators um, who have deep experience in how to support those on the spectrum and. Um, You know, I think one of the most heartening parts is that, um, you know, when you look at what happens to employment uh, for autistic adults, you know, on average, only 15% of autistic adults find employment, which is just tragic
0: um,
1: on so many levels. Um, And so... You know, this is, um, you know, so we have started um, with roles, for example, in facilities management. We are um, also going to be piloting this for tech roles as well. This is, you know, it's it's too soon to say, you know, what's the body of learnings, um, but um, this is an area that we want to invest in because, you know, something where only 15% of the population is employed means that there is just tremendous tremendous waste of talent there is tremendous tragedy in one's life and so anything we can do and we very much want to partner with other organizations in terms of because we recognize that um, our skills alone are not going to be sufficient to be able to do this um, at its fullest so we're very keen to work with others to be able to serve those on the spectrum and those facing other disabilities as well.
0: Yeah, it, uh, on that point, it relates a little bit to a question that came in uh, a few minutes ago from Ray Alba, who was asking about, you know, how, how you guys are partnering with local organizations in the middle of this, you know, presumably you've got lots of different partnerships. And his question was really around, right? Like, how are you, you know, getting to a place where there might be self-sustainability of these programs? Uh, you know, and so it would be interesting just to hear a couple examples of, local partnerships, you know, how, how you're kind of embedding this, if you will, in, in, a, in a self-sustainable model. And I, I assume some of that is just self-sustainable because of the employer partnerships, but are there a lot of other kind of local ecosystem partners that you're working with in the process?
1: Absolutely. All um, right. The way generation is built, it's that um, we're a methodology, that we embed inside a local nonprofit or inside a local technical vocational organization or inside a community college um, or inside an employer, right? Um, And so we very much want to be a part of um, leveraging the community infrastructure as opposed to building a parallel program. So you won't walk into a generation building, for example. You know um you walk right. into a generation classroom at another institution yeah. <laughs> right and so yeah. we take that to heart very much and so and that's a very important part of what enables us to also do this cost effectively um you know so for example in india and kenya we're you know we're able and in the US you know we are able to leverage the infrastructure like the when 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 there were classrooms but classroom space instructors <laughs> right um existing apparatus um, to deliver the programs. And that's the path we will continue down.
0: Well, I, you know, first of all, I just want to say, you know, congratulations on the incredible progress you've made. You know, I I was very familiar with this program, as you know, when you guys first launched, and I feel like are catching up today. Uh, you've clearly come, you know, miles uh, since uh, since the early days. And so thank you for your leadership around it. I really appreciate you taking the time to carve out uh, for this interview today. And I know there were a lot of folks who uh, were, were intrigued and tuned in. So um, maybe if it's okay with you, I'll, uh, I'll make sure I follow back up with you in another year or so and get some updates on regeneration and some of the other new things you're doing. So thank you again, Mona. And uh, for those of you who are tuning in next Thursday, uh, I've got uh, Dr. Ella Washington joining me. She's an expert on diversity, inclusivity and equity. Uh, doing a lot of advising with companies on this and uh, has also thought deeply about it through the lens of higher education. So uh, please join us next Thursday. Mona, thank you again, and uh, I'll look forward to uh, getting some updates.
1: Thank you so much, Brandon. Thank you for the invitation and would love to be back in the air.
0: Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks everybody for joining.